Joining me today is the editor of humanprogress.org and a senior policy analyst at the Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity, Marion Tupi. Welcome to the Rubin Report. Thanks for having me. I am uh, very excited to have you on. Uh, we've met once before uh, for a dinner. Uh, but what you're doing with Human Progress, I think, is just spectacular. You guys are actually promoting good news. There is actual good news and good things happening in the world. And it seemingly uh, is something that people don't often talk about. So I think you're doing great work, and we're going to spend an hour talking about a lot of the good stuff that is happening. Uh, but I always like to start with a little bio on people. So uh, tell me a little bit about yourself. How do you end up? working for human progress? Well, I was born uh, behind the Iron Curtain in what was then uh, communist Czechoslovakia. And so uh, from early age, I uh, started to understand the importance of political and economic freedom. Uh, we had neither um, in <laughs> that, That'll make you learn it pretty quick, huh? That's right. And then uh, um, when the wall came down in 1989, uh, me and my parents uh, went for Christmas in Vienna. Uh, that was the first time that you could actually leave your country and you could travel abroad yeah. uh, as a family. Um, How old were you at the time? I was uh, 13. Um, uh, because be before then, uh, people still could travel to the West, but they would keep the, 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 the children behind mm -hmm. as hostages. But now that the wall came down and communism collapsed, you could travel anywhere you wanted. So we decided to go to Vienna. And, and the moment that we crossed the border into a Western capitalist liberal democracy, uh, it was like stepping out of a black and white movie into mm. a uh, color film. Uh, everything was just so much beautiful, so much more beautiful. Um, the shops were full. People were smiling. There was color everywhere. Huh. And uh, so I think that even at that early stage uh, of my life, I started to think about what makes countries rich, what makes countries poor. And that's, I think, where my interest in, uh, in, in all of that started, really. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about your, your education. Well, I uh, went to high school and uh, undergraduate in Johannesburg, South Africa, mm -hmm. of all places. Uh, because uh, when the wall came down, my parents emigrated to, to South Africa. They are medical doctors, and so their expertise was, was needed. Um, so as a kid, I got to see both the fall of communism and also the fall of apartheid, uh, which is kind of a unique experience. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I'm, I'm very glad I had the kind of uh, childhood or upbringing I had. Um, and uh, so, I, so I finished my undergraduate at the University of Edwardesrand, in Johannesburg, and then uh, I went to do my master's and my PhD at St. Andrews in uh, Scotland. Uh, yeah. What, what's it like being in these places when something is falling, like communism or apartheid? Because we seem to live in a time right now where a lot of people think that we're watching parts of the West kind of fall. And you, you've seen some stuff fall. Yes, I think that uh, for the vast majority of the population in Czechoslovakia, uh, clearly the fall of communism was a tremendous blessing. There was an immense uh, amount of uh, optimism um, about the future. And also unavoidable disappointment with some aspects yeah. of the utopian future that people have imagined. Nonetheless, um, just about anybody who analyzes economics and politics in Central and Eastern Europe over the last 25 years concludes that people are much, much better off than they used to be. And I think the similar thing was happening for a vast majority of South Africans, especially black South Africans, who never had a vote never had political rights or most political rights under apartheid and of course in 1994 um, South Africa held its first multiracial democratic elections mm -hmm. and as a consequence there was also a tremendous amount of optimism uh, again followed by the inevitable um, disappointments as reality set in yeah. nonetheless it's an extraordinary time of enthusiasm and optimism and, and tremendous I think um, sense of brotherhood between people. You know how they say you never know what you've got until it's gone? Sure, that may usually be about love, but it's also about your hair. That's why I recommend using Keeps, the easiest and most affordable way to keep the hair you have. Keeps offers generic versions of the only two FDA-approved hair loss products out there. Some of you may have tried before, but never at this price. Now they're inexpensive and easy to get. 
Keeps is only 10 to $35 a month, and now you can get your first month free. Keeps will make your hair feel thicker and less patchy. You want a fuller head of hair? Get started today. Sign up takes less than five minutes. Just answer a couple questions and snap some photos of your hair. A licensed physician will review your information online and recommend the right treatment for you, and then it's shipped right to your door every three months. To receive your first month of treatment for free, go to keeps.com slash Ruben. That's K-E-E-P-S dot com slash Ruben. That's a free month of treatment at keeps.com slash Ruben. Keeps. Hair today, hair tomorrow, and now back to the show. Yeah, do you think that's necessary, that sort of utopian vision of when things are changing, that everything is gonna be magically fixed and better, and then, as you're saying, then there's that period where you go, oh, it it didn't, everything didn't magically get fixed at once, but you sort of need that vision to, to get there, you sort of need that to kind of see in the distance? I think you appeal to a a, a utopian uh, vision uh, of the future as you consolidate uh, democracy uh, in the case of of, uh, Eastern Europe and as you consolidate multiracial democracy in uh, in the case of South Africa. But ultimately utopianism is the great enemy of, uh, of, of human progress uh, because I think that human progress needs to, be, needs to be measured in terms of the past rather than some sort of a utopian future. Human progress is an incremental uh, process um, where you are trying to decide, okay, is today better than yesterday? And if mm-hmm. so, that is progress. Um, problems are going to be with us uh, forever. The question is, are we actually uh, improving incrementally in important areas of human well-being on a daily basis? Is that one of the problems with how we ingest news? Because I was telling you before we started, like I went on Human Progress this morning and it feels good to me. I mean, the, the layout of the site is great and, you, and the images and the colors and all that, but like seeing so many consistently good things trending mm-hmm. that you don't see anywhere else, and we're gonna, we're gonna get into many of them, is that just, is it hard to get clicks because people don't like the, oh, things are a little better than yesterday and, a little, and, the, and the long trends when they just want the, the day-to-day craziness and headlines and all that? Yes, uh, I, I wouldn't be the first one to point to the nature of news. Uh, the fact that news is about things that happen, as Steven Pinker always likes to say, yeah. uh, you know, there is no journalist standing in the middle of a city that is at peace <laughs> saying, you know, I'm here in uh, Luanda, the capital of um, whatever it is, uh, yeah. of Angola, I think. Um, and there is no civil war. Uh, you know, journalists go to places where terrible things happen and they report on those things. And so that gives a skewed image of what is happening uh, in the world. Mm-hmm. If it bleeds, it leads. I mean, yeah. that, 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 is, that is a well-known phenomenon. Combined with the nature of the social media, certainly I think that um, uh, uh, Twitter and, uh, uh, and, and smartphones uh, make terrible things immediate and intimate. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, we were able to watch tsunami in Japan in real time. Mm-hmm. We saw uh, destruction and, and death of uh, thousands of people in real time. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas, you know, a couple of decades, a few decades ago, and, and certainly a few centuries ago, y- you would never have known yeah. that a terrible thing has happened on the other side of the world. Does that complicate your work, do you think, that, that people get information so quickly that then maybe are making misjudgments because they're not looking at the sort of long view of history? I'm not sure if it complicates things uh, because pessimism is part of human nature. Um, it, uh, it also enables us to, to, to respond uh, to these stories in a quicker time uh, to be able to say, uh, on our website at least, Look, it is true that there was, in this particular case, um, tsunami and people have died, but look at the long-term trends in terms of uh, people dying and property being damaged due to extreme weather events uh, or natural catastrophes and the the trend is declining. Mm -hmm. So we are also able to use the social media to to respond to it. 
the 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 problem is that the good news doesn't get picked up yeah uh, as often as the bad news uh, because the bad news leads uh, the, the good news doesn't. Yeah, and there's just a psychological component. There might be an evolutionary reason we focus on the bad things, maybe for survival or something to that effect. Yes, um, John Tooby and uh, Leda Cosimides from University of, uh, is it Southern California at Santa Barbara? Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. Um, they, are, uh, they are the pioneers of, uh, of evolutionary biology. Uh, they believe that our brains have evolved uh, in, uh, at a time in, in tens of thousands of years ago when uh, the world was just a much more inhospitable place than what it is today. Mm-hmm. Um, the world where uh, there was omnipresent danger from uh, other tribes, from wild animals, from poisonings, um, and um, um, at a time when life expectancy was, was very low, and uh, they like to say that our modern skulls house ancient minds. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and, and the kind of psychological responses that we have evolved for tens of thousands of years ago um, are difficult to apply to modernity, which is just so fundamentally different than what it was until relatively recently. The, the, the key period here in time history is the last 200 to 250 years when the world really has changed beyond all recognition. Yeah. So in a weird way, are we almost, we as humans, are we almost victims of our own success? I mean, that's sort of what it sounds like. Like we've, we've done so much good. We have advanced so far that now we're, we nitpick about little things constantly and think they're massive when, yeah, we're not dying of massive, we're, we're doing a lot with disease, which we're gonna get to, and, and a whole bunch of other things. We've made our lives way safer and extended our lives and all of these things. So we're almost a victim of all of that goodness. Uh, yes, so from an evolutionary perspective, again, a research of others, not yeah. my own, overreaction to a potentially bad thing happening had a lower cost to the organism, in this case, a human being, than underreaction. Mm-hmm. Um, if, if you overreacted, uh, saw something that may have been potentially harmful, you overreacted to it, but, but you survived. Whereas if you underreacted to something that was potentially harmful, then uh, your gene pool ended right, right there. It ends then. pretty quick, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so those genes didn't get passed on. So, yeah. uh, so, so yes, um, um, the complexity of the modern economy, um, the complexity of the social interactions, um, global trading system, for example, is uh, certainly um, uh, much greater than what our ancestors were exposed to. And so it is uh, perhaps not surprising that a lot of people are uh, um, a, little bit, a little bit uneasy or continue to be uneasy. Yeah. Uh, then again, the website is there to show people precisely how bad things were before and mm-hmm. how th- good things are now. So don't get depressed um, uh, too much. Um, th- there is a good story to be told about uh, humanity. Yeah, it's interesting. When I go speak at colleges, one of the lines that I think does actually work with young people who are, you know, if they're protesting and they're screaming about the patriarchy and evils of capitalism and all of this stuff, I'll always say to them, you know, does anyone in this room not have it better than their grandparents? And certainly in the United States, but if you live in the Western world, basically everybody does, pretty much. I have yet to find someone that doesn't. And I always think that's a really effective way of getting people who who are so focused on the negative Mm -hmm. to go, oh, something good must have happened because, you know, even though I like to to scream about my victimhood, it's a lot better than what my grandparents had. Yes, I mean, take uh, something like uh, like uh, women's equality or gay equality or even caring about uh, environment and uh, and uh, uh, and animal rights uh, or animal welfare, I should say. Um, Jonathan Haidt from uh, uh, New York University uh, says that capitalism actually fundamentally transforms uh, our uh, sense of values. Um, um, because, or priorities, I should maybe say, because when we are extremely poor, uh, which is to say the first 
0.9% of Homo sapiens on Earth. Right. Um, uh, the, the, the primary objective of any individual human being was, was to survive. Mm -hmm. uh, you had to somehow get hold of enough calories to make it to the next day. You had to somehow avoid being murdered <laughs> by somebody who wanted your stuff. Yeah. Um, uh, you had to somehow protect your family. You had to keep away from cold, from heat, etc. But in the last 200 years or so, our incomes have skyrocketed. Uh, the world is, roughly speaking, adjusted for inflation. I can't say this often enough because people yeah. always attack, oh, they, but you're not adjusting for inflation. Yeah. Of course we are adjusting for inflation. <laughs> adjusted for inflation, the world average is roughly 12 times better off than what it was in, uh, in 1820. Hmm. So we have become much richer. And when you no longer have to worry about things like survival, you start caring about things uh, like uh, the nature of the society that you live in, uh, the fairness uh, of treatment of your fellow human beings. Uh, you start caring about uh, women equality, as I said. You start caring about gay rights. You start caring about animal protection and environmental protection. So, um, uh, so in that sense, um, the, the, the tremendous increase in, in incomes and, and general wealth of the society has also contributed to creating a much fairer and much more egalitarian society. So capitalism isn't all evil? Is that what you're telling me? People who think capitalism sh uh, is evil, I, I highly recommend that they visit Cuba, <laughs> they visit Venezuela, they visit North Korea and countries which have, which have taken deliberately uh, a step in the opposite direction. Um, yeah. Capitalism has its problems. Uh, liberal democracy has its problems, and it is our task to try to fix these problems on the margins. Mm -hmm. uh, but to throw out the economic and social underpinnings of modernity, of this, of this extraordinary age of abundance, uh, would be a mistake. Are, are you shocked at the amount of people in the West that seemingly want to do just that? Um, uh, no, uh, I'm, much, uh, I'm, I'm not even shocked by the fact that in Eastern Europe, where I'm from, um, people who are in their early teens and into the late teens, pe people who have never experienced communism, people who were born after the fall of the Berlin Wall, are now embracing socialist ideas, or yeah. at least those socialist ideas are now increasingly popular amongst young people, which they, which they certainly aren't amongst people of my generation. Hey, I want to tell you guys about an amazing service called Zeal. They offer professional in-home massages at your door in an hour. After a long day at work or a tense holiday weekend, Zeal is the perfect way to de-stress. You don't have to go all the way to the spa or sit around with a bunch of strangers at the gym. With Zeal, you get a professional massage in the privacy of your own home. Just open up the Zeal app and choose your favorite massage style. You can choose from Swedish, deep tissue, sports, prenatal, or sleep massage. An hour later, Later, a licensed massage therapist shows up at your door. They even bring their own massage table. It's like the spa comes to you. The best part is tip is included so you don't have to dig around for cash when you're done. Just rinse off in your own shower and get back to your day or go straight to bed. Download the Zeal app and use the promo code RUBIN for $25 off your first massage. Zeal, wellness on the way. That's Zeal, Z-E-E-L, and now back to the show. What do you chalk that up to? Because I don't think it's just that they didn't experience it. Is it, yeah. is, it, is it just that utopian dream that we all have, or is it just that it all sounds good? The, the endless cry of equality, which of course never turns out to be equality, it all is just, if you don't want to really deeply think about a system, well then communism well, or socialism is, is pretty good. Well, Milton Friedman liked to say that, uh, that every generation needs to be educated in the benefits of freedom. And I think that even founding fathers were talking about something about, uh, you know, uh, we are always one generation away from, mm -hmm. from tyranny. Mm -hmm. Now, what that meant was to say that there is something perhaps in human nature um, that drags us back into that, um, into that tribal socialistic mindset. Now, there are a lot of different theories about that. One possible theory is 
that actually as we grow up, we grow up in, a, uh, in the only functioning communist, uh, communist society or communist institution, which is the family. Hmm. Uh, in a family, uh, especially a nuclear family, uh, people share wildly. Um, children are not expected to uh, earn uh, their breakfast uh, by, uh, um, um, I, I don't know, bringing home the bacon or whatever. <laughs> right, um, right, right. You know, things get shared very, very equally and so forth. And, and that can work. Um, on, a, on a sort of nuclear family level, mm -hmm. uh, the further you go, the less it works. I mean, it, 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 what you are prepared to do for your children is not the same what you are prepared to do for your cousins. It's not the same what you are prepared to do for your second cousins, for your fellow citizens, and for that matter, for people on the opposite side of the world. Mm -hmm. And so uh, the, the, the fact that we are able to conduct our affairs um, uh, on on a uh, along these along these socialist lines uh, in in nuclear family um, doesn't then translate into hmm. into the society as a whole. So that may be one reason. Another reason may be that that um, um, there is within human beings within human psychology a tendency to want to bring down people who have gotten too far up. Mm -hmm. If you are thinking about tribal society. Uh, or, or these roaming groups of hunter-gatherers of, say, between 50 and 150 people, um, where everybody... Uh, you didn't want all the women and all the food to be monopolized by the one alpha male. Mm -hmm. So usually there was some sort of a combination of, of an alliance made by other males to bring this alpha male down so there would be a greater sharing. Yeah. And, and that was good for the alpha male too, right? I mean, he wanted to survive himself. And if he, he survived, been, if yeah. he survived. I mean, I, I mean in, in, uh, uh, amongst the chimps and uh, uh, so forth, uh, the, the alpha male does usually and very poorly. Mm -hmm. um, so that may be another reason. Uh, another reason may be that uh, in the hunter-gathering society, uh, some of the food uh, would be shared equally. Uh, there was, uh, for example, if you killed an animal, uh, there was no refrigeration. You couldn't store it. There was no accumulation of wealth in that sense. Mm -hmm. uh, and so things did get shared amongst the members of the group. Uh, Plus, there was no accumulation of wealth because, um, because you were constantly moving. So whatever you acquired was limited to whatever you were able to carry on, the back, on your back. Yeah. Um, so, yes, the differences between people, um, at least to the extent that we are experiencing now, uh, is something that is probably quite new yeah. uh, from an evolutionary standpoint. So all of these reasons um, ensure that, uh, um, and, and many more, ensure that young people, or rather every generation needs to be uh, explicitly educated in why uh, the economy that we have today, which is so different from what our ancestors have experienced, is actually good for us. Free trade is a very good example. Mm -hmm. um, uh, free trade contributes to economic growth, and yet uh, um, every generation you have a new push for protectionism. Again, the complexity of the economy has outpaced our ability to understand it without explicit learning. Yeah, all right, so let's talk about a whole bunch of these trends that are happening right in front of our eyes, but as you said, they're happening incrementally, so people don't necessarily focus on them enough. Uh, well, I'll, I'll let you kick off the first one. What do, you, what do you think is the most encouraging worldwide trend at the moment? Or, well, or what's exciting you the most, perhaps? Well, so the human progress is unabashedly about, uh, it's hum human-centric. Uh, which is to say that we consider the welfare and the flourishing of a human being, all human beings, uh, to be uh, to be really important, of primary importance. Yeah, that's and an interesting distinction because you didn't call it earthprogress.org, yeah. right? I mean, the idea was that this is so that humans can figure out the best place, the best way to live here. And hopefully that's good for the Earth too, but that humans actually are number one here. Yes, we can certainly talk um, later in the show about uh, is it possible for humans to coexist with the earth and the animals? And, and what can we do to make sure that that actually happens? But human progress is a humanistic project. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, clearly there is no more fundamental uh, 
um, aspect to human flourishing than staying alive. And uh, here uh, we have seen tremendous improvement. Um, prior to 1800s, uh, life expectancy around the world was anywhere between 25 and 30 years, since time immemorial. Mm -hmm. uh, as late as 1950, uh, sorry, as late as 1900, in the richest countries of the world, life expectancy was only 50 years. Today, globally, it's 70 years. In the United States, it's 78 years. And in places like Japan, it's 88 years. So wait, let's, let's not gloss over that, because yeah. those were some powerful numbers. So yeah. in 1900, the average life expectancy was 50 years. So based in, uh, the, the, in, in rich countries. In, in, in rich, rich countries. countries yeah. In rich countries. Yeah. So this is, that's even more I impressive, so yeah. to speak, how we've advanced it. So you're, you're saying basically in the 120 years since then or so, we've extended it by 20 years. Uh, about we extended it by years. 30 years in, in the West, in yeah. rich countries, and by about... And, and, and an average person today, say somebody living in Malaysia, lives 20 years longer than rich people did in 1900. Yeah, that's incredible. So in 120 years in, in rich Western countries, we extended life 30 years in 120 that's years. Right. I mean, that's, that's, that's almost unfathomable, actually. Uh, it's, it's, it's wonderful. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> so that's the first thing is that, you yeah. know, people want to stay alive um, because uh, they, they, they enjoy it. Yeah. Can you give me some of the markers of how we actually did that? Well, uh, uh, one thing is decline in violence, which, again, Steven Pinker has, uh, has written a whole book about, um, um, uh, you know, um, rates of uh, people dying in, in wars have, have declined, certainly since the end of the Second World War. Um, today, for the first time in human history, uh, there is no hot conflict between two states that have declared war on each other. Mm -hmm. So we still have a frozen conflict between North Korea and the United States. Uh, we, have, uh, we have the Russian invasion of the Eastern Ukraine. Mm -hmm. But even then, Russia and Ukraine are not officially at war. So mm -hmm. this, this old concept of two countries you know, declaring war on each other and then going to wars is actually, has actually, well, at this stage, it has disappeared. Yeah. Um, the it it thing, would almost be unfathomable these days where two warring countries with full-on wars were invading each other in the traditional sense. It would yes. almost be hard to imagine what yes. that would look like now. That, that is very... Or what could cause that. Yeah. Um, hopefully it stays that way. Yeah. Uh, one yeah. thing to, to, to remember about, about, about human progress is that there is nothing predetermined about it. It is not linear. There are obviously uh, things which can go terribly wrong. Uh, in the 20th century, you have the First World War, possibly the most unnecessary major conflict uh, in, in recent centuries, uh, followed by uh, the Second World War, the Holocaust, the Gulag, and what have you. But the remarkable thing about human progress and humanity as a whole it's, is that it is quite robust. At the end of the 20th century, life expectancy was still longer than what it was at the beginning of the 20th century. Mm -hmm. We were still consuming more calories, more people went to school, and so on and so forth, in spite of the 20th century being actually quite violent. Yeah. Anyhow, since the, since the end of the Second World War, the uh, uh, world has gotten progressively more peaceful. Then, of course, you have medical breakthroughs. Um, Wait, let, let's pause yeah, on the violence yeah. part for just a sec, because I think it's one of those things where you can say that to people and you can sh talk all about the wars that don't exist anymore and that there aren't you know, genocides the way there were and, and all of those things, it, thus, though admitting that some bad things are still happening, I think people just don't buy it. They, they see school shootings or they see you know, a riot here or something happening all over the place and they just automatically believe things are getting worse. That sort of gets us to where we started mm -hmm. about how technology is a part of this. But how, how difficult is that for you, just to get the truth across to people and have them actually accept it, while at the same time they're looking at you know, a shooting or this or that that they can just quickly see online? Yeah, you've got to look at the long-term trends and, and try to figure out whether things, in fact, are getting worse or whether this is a blip. Um, you know, the line of progress, again, is not linear, it is jagged, yeah. and, um, and there is no, uh, uh, once again, there, there is no guarantee that, uh, that, that things will continue uh, to improve. So you have to look at long-term trends. I think the Atlantic ran a story a few months ago after the latest uh, school shooting showing that actually 
the, the number of kids dying at schools, horrible as it is, yeah. um, have been uh, on a decline. Um, so yes, yeah, so long-term trends um, and then having journalists to actually report those long-term trends, that, 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 that would be key. Yeah. So, so violence is one thing. It, it, we live in less violent times. The second thing is that the medical breakthroughs were absolutely fundamental. Uh, and here I would point simply to two things. One was vaccination. Um, a guy called Jenner in uh, mid, um, I believe, mid-18th century England noticed that milkmaids uh, didn't get... Uh, didn't get uh, smallpox. Now, smallpox was absolutely horrifying disease. I mean, your body would be covered with these, um, with these Lesions, pustules, and, yeah. and they would, f- and and you know, eighty percent of kids who got it died. Uh, up to sixty percent of adults who got it who died, uh, you know, died. Uh, in in eighteenth century uh, France, it was estimated ninety five percent of the population got smallpox at, at one point of their lives wow. or another. Wow. And Jenner noticed that milkmaids didn't get smallpox. That's because they got a milder version of the pox from cows. Hmm. And so he started inoculating people with the pox from the cow. And because the Latin word for cow is vacca, our word vaccination comes from, from that. And that huh. was a major improvement. The other thing that happened was... Um, uh, was that humanity discovered the, the germ theory of disease. Um, we didn't know that disease was spread via germs. People had all sorts of weird ideas about humors in the body mm-hmm. and miasmatic theories and uh, what have you, and it was all nonsense. Uh, but the upshot of us being so ignorant about how disease spreads was that people, for example, didn't wash their hands. Uh, and you can imagine, <laughs> right? <laughs> if you're a farmer yeah. who is using human excrement in order to fertilize his fields and comes home and sits down to dinner. You can imagine what sort of diseases that leads yeah. to. Now, um, Jews, funny enough, who washed their hands uh, as part of their religious rituals uh, tended to fall less sick and die at a lower rate Huh. than the rest of the of the European population. But once again, because people were so ignorant about how diseases spread, they assumed it was magic, yeah. which again led to pogroms and discrimination against the Jews. Huh. But um, even doctors uh, didn't. Um, doctors also didn't change their clothes uh, because the more blood and gore you had on your clothes, uh, the more it signified to the potential patient <laughs> That you were a doctor in great demand, right? Right. So, so, so doctors were actually a massive uh, reason, or, or one of the major reasons why disease spread. They went from dissecting corpses to delivering babies, introducing pathogen into 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 the body of a uh, of a mother, and uh, and all that stopped basically after. Uh, uh, discovery of the germ theory of disease uh, and and uh, uh, child mortality, maternal mortality started to decline and life expectancy showed up as a result. Yeah. What, what else is going on with the diseases of today that we're, we're getting close to eradicating some things that still exist, right? Well, we are very close to eradicating po- uh, polio. Yeah. Uh, there are some what's called wild cases of polio in, uh, in uh, places like uh, the Congo. Um, uh, of course, we have uh, we have uh, made HIV/AIDS, uh, or rather, we have we have uh, created drugs that no longer make HIV/AIDS a death sentence. Mm-hmm. Uh, which, you know, considering it only took uh, from 1980 when we first started talking about HIV/AIDS to about 1994, 1995, when the first antiretroviral drugs came along, uh, only 14 or 15 years. Uh, that, that's a remarkable accomplishment. I mean, mm-hmm. people have lived with smallpox for millennia. Um, so we have, we, we have, we were able to do that. Now, the other thing which is quite extraordinary is that cancer rates are declining. Now, the reason why that's so interesting is that incidences of cancer increase with age. So as people grow older, and on average, 
we continue to, to, to increase our life expectancy. Right. The chances of you contracting or developing cancer, not contracting, but developing yeah. cancer, yeah. Uh, get much higher. Cancer is basically just um, cells dividing uh, during a normal process um, of, of human body um, uh, existing. Uh, but uh, the more s subdivision of cells you get, the more likely it is that one of them is going to go crazy and uh, start subdividing without control and cause cancer and you're going to die. And the fact that cancer rates for men and women are declining, certainly in rich countries, even though life expectancy yeah. is shooting up, that's again an extraordinary um, an extraordinary achievement um, because of early detection, because of better drugs. Now with CRISPR-Cas9, the, um, the gene editing uh, system, uh, we are probably going to be able to focus on personalized medicines. So we are going to be able to create drugs specifically for one individual or group of individuals who share. Um, can can you explain CRISPR a little bit just for, for those that are, you, know, you, know, you don't have to give me a, a major yeah. explanation, but like the sort of the most simple explanation of it. I was reading something on the site today about CRISPR. Yeah, well, it's, it's, it's a gene editing technique, uh, which is to say that uh, hypothetically, and hopefully we're not very far from, from, that, uh, from that time, uh, you'll be able to splice out of the genome uh, to cut out from the genome uh, genes which are responsible for uh, congenital uh, diseases, uh, which would be uh, which would be a very nice. Uh, it would be very nice to know that if a child gets born, uh, it won't develop multiple sclerosis uh, twenty years down the line and die in in terrible pain. So these are the sorts of things that we could do with CRISPR. Yeah, uh, I want to move on to the environment, but is there anything else on the, the, um, the medical side? I think that's. Side of uh, I mean, education is the obvious uh, example. Uh, obviously, uh, eighty percent of the world is literate, whereas most of the time people were not literate. Um, there's now a gender parity between boys and girls, pretty much, uh, on average in the world. Uh, again. Uh, something to be happy about because historically uh, girls were kept from education at, at a higher rate than boys. Mm -hmm. I mean, even in Afghanistan now, uh, girls are allowed to go to school, hmm. which again is a wonderful thing. And nutrition, I would, I would really like to end with nutrition, which is to say that um, famine has disappeared from the world uh, outside of uh, war zones. We all remember those images of starving children um, with um, yeah. inflated bellies in, yeah. uh, in Ethiopia in the early 1980s. Yeah. And um, uh, that's, that's pretty much uh, disappeared. And um, um, uh, hunger uh, was a, basically a normal human condition throughout our history and uh, today, um, an average African consumes as many calories as the Portuguese did in the early 1960s. Hmm. Just about everywhere in the world, people are consuming more calories than, uh, than what, uh, what the USDA recommends uh, should be the average intake. And in, in Africa, they, they are certainly reaching that threshold. And Africa is important because that's really where absolute poverty um, continues to be a major problem. Um, I, I think it's fair to say that absolute poverty is uh, going to is, is ending as a global problem. It is now going to remain as a as a as a uh, as an African problem um, that is concentrated in a couple of African countries in, in in a few African countries, including places like the Congo. If you like supporting small businesses and unique products, then let me tell you about a company that'll embrace you as much as you embrace them. Datusara is a small business that makes an innovative line of bags, clothing, and accessories from hemp fabrics. Their name comes from a Japanese phrase that embodies the spirit of freeing yourself to find your true path. Their backpacks will fit all of your needs with highly functional styles and naturally antimicrobial breathable hemp fabric that won't get nasty or moldy. Datsusara bags are not your typical hippie hemp gear. Lesser bags break, a Datsusara bag comes with a three-year warranty. You'll find a wide variety of products from bags, clothing, and accessories for your whole family. Datsusara truly cares about your path, free speech, and the pursuit of the best ideas to benefit all, which is exactly why they're supporting the Rubin Report. Head over to dsgear.com and use promo code Rubin for 10% off any order. That's dsgear.com and use the promo code Rubin for 10% off any order. 
And now back to the show. All right, so let's shift to the environment. If you listen to the news, it's getting hotter. Everybody's freaking out about everything. We don't have clean water, all of these things. Calm me down. Well, I don't want to get into a debate, uh, into a debate over, over the science of, of global warming. I'll leave it to the specialists. Um, certainly, I do acknowledge that there is a consensus that the world is warming, uh, whether it is warming at a, at a too high uh, rate or a lukewarming rate and where it's heading. Uh, obviously, prediction of the future is the, that's the most difficult thing. I'm going to leave that to, to specialists and to scientists. Yeah. Just very quickly yeah. on that, though, is it possible that in some of the places that it's warming, it's actually good that it's warming? Well, uh, certainly this, this, uh, this one scientist from Holland called uh, Professor Toll has uh, calculated uh, the, the likely costs and benefits of global warming until 2080 or so. And he thought that uh, um, because of the growing... Uh, because of the longer growing season, we'll be able to actually bring in uh, more, uh, more, more food, grow, grow more food. Mm-hmm. He also thought that uh, th- there is also some evidence that the world is greening as a result of more uh, CO2 in the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. But I do acknowledge, I want to make it very clear, yeah, yeah, I don't right. want any hate mail to you <laughs> or to me. I want You're to going to get hate mail either way, <laughs> but acknowledge your way. Uh, I want to acknowledge that... Um, uh, th- there are serious concerns, um, uh, and and I'm I'm basically a guy who is a techno optimist. I want to look for solutions mm-hmm. uh, to these problems, uh, rather than uh, what I don't want to do is to stop economic development. I don't want to stop economic development in developing countries because it's extremely important that that people who are very very poor should not be very, very poor. Mm -hmm. It's very important that if a woman in Angola or in Zambia has a premature birth, she should be able to have an access to uh, to an incubator that is run on on uh, 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 on an electricity grid that is not going to collapse, Mm -hmm. for example, okay? That uh, that people can, can air condition their homes, let's say in Africa, or they can they can keep themselves warm in uh, in Argentina, basically that that is my my goal, not to stop economic development. Mm-hmm. Um, that is particularly true of uh, of of poor countries, uh, but I also think that uh, it applies to rich countries. Um, if if we can make life more comfortable for people, I I, I see no. Uh, I, I, I think it would be very difficult, especially within the democratic context context to stop that. Now look at what's happening in, uh, in Macron's Paris. Mm-hmm. We've seen riots yeah, major that riots. that country hasn't, hasn't seen since the 1960s. Why is that? That's because the environmental concerns of the French elite, Macron included, are bumping against uh, the uh, living standards and limitations on the living standards of ordinary French men and women. If you increase uh, the price of electricity uh, dramatically in order to make people cut down on electricity, it's also going to reduce their, their, both their comfort but also their standard of living. Mm-hmm. If you're going to put additional taxes on this, that, and the other, cars, uh, gasoline, what have you, uh, eventually people are going to get upset and are going to start voting for some very unpleasant people. Mm-hmm. And this is something that uh, we see happening throughout Europe. Now, there are many different reasons why people vote for um, uh, for unpleasant uh, political parties, but uh, a, a, a fundamental feeling that that standards of living in Europe are stagnating and that they are being taxed to a point uh, where they actually have to go out and protest in the streets, burn uh, hundreds of cars, mm-hmm. and basically vandalize the Arc de Triomphe. Okay? Yeah. So, so these things are happening. So what I want to do is to sort of navigate a middle course between, uh, between concerns of the environment uh, and, uh, and, uh, and continued economic development and continued prosperity. And I think that the answer could potentially be found in uh, techno-optimism, as I would call it. So I would consider fracking to be a good example of techno-optimism, okay? Uh, burning of one unit of natural gas produces half as much CO2 emissions as burning of coal. Mm-hmm. So I think it would make a lot of sense to burn more 
natural gas than coal. But our friends on the environmental side hate that because it's still fossil fuels. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's forget about fossil fuels. Let's have nuclear energy, okay? Last time anybody has died from a nuclear accident was in Chernobyl uh, because the communist leadership uh, cut corners when it came to safety and uh, there was a breakdown of, of um, chain of command and whatever and there was this, this accident where, uh, where dozens of people died. But since then, not mm -hmm. a single person has died as a result of nuclear accidents, including in Fukushima, which is the most recent one. Um, so nuclear energy is a perfect example of producing a lot of energy uh, without any CO2 emissions. Are our friends uh, in the environmentalist movement pleased? No, they are not. Let's take another example. Um, uh, say, uh, fertilizer. Let's say that we can genetically engineer crops to need less fertilizer and less pesticides. Why do we want uh, less fertilizer and less pesticides? Because when those flow into rivers and then into oceans, mm -hmm. they can have a negative consequence for wildlife. So ideally, we would like to use less fertilizer, less pesticide. So imagine that through GMOs, uh, through genetic engineering, we could produce crops that, uh, that, that don't require uh, pesticides and, mm -hmm. and uh, fertilizer. Are our friends in the environmental lobby happy? No, they mm -hmm. hate that. They idea. hate those three letters. So every single GMO. time that yeah. we offer, as techno-optimists, we offer a gradual move in the right direction, which cumulatively mm -hmm. could have a massive impact on quality of life, on uh, environmental protection and so forth. Um, you know, the, the, the answer is always no. So, what, so it's interesting because when, when you started talking about this, there's this immediate hesitancy because I think everyone, if you talk about climate at all, people think you're gonna get slammed. And I can tell you the most hate that I ever got on this show was when I had Alex Epstein on mm -hmm. who wrote a book called The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels. And uh, uh, he wasn't denying climate science, he was just saying that fossil fuels in his estimation are still the best way to advance human prosperity going yes. forward. So it's interesting, you, you immediately said you didn't wanna to go too far down that road because it just opens up the, the hate and all that. But, but the, in essence what you're saying is that we're having to fight the environmentalists on what you would prescribe as the best ways to move the environment forward. That, that's pretty fascinating. So how do you get through to these people then? I'm, I, I, well, I don't know, I'm trying. <laughs> One of the things I'm trying to, to explain to a lot of my friends is that actually prosperity and economic development can be a friend of the environment. Mm -hmm. That's because of this concept of environmental Kuznets curve. Now that's just a fancy way of saying that when people grow richer, they are willing to spend more money on clean environment and protection of animals. How do I know that? Because in, in, well, it's not just stats which show it, but also look at the real life examples. When the economy collapsed in Zimbabwe, the first thing the people did in order to survive was to start slaughtering animals in the wild. Shooting zebras for meat, shooting elephants for tusks, mm -hmm. um, and, and the environment took a huge knock. In Venezuela, when the economy collapsed, both socialist countries, by the way, but never mind. Uh, in Venezuela, when the economy collapsed, uh, people started slaughtering animals in the zoo. The only way you can survive, if, you, yeah. if, if it's a choice between the life of an antelope and the survival of a child, you know exactly what to do. And so economic development, making people richer, is actually... Um, a, a very good way of accomplishing this environmental Kuznets curve. When people grow rich, they start caring about the air they breathe, they start caring about uh, welfare of animals, and so on and so forth, right. because those are, from the perspective of the survival of the human being, luxury goods. Mm -hmm. And we are already seeing some very interesting things happening around the world. For example, the forest coverage of, uh, of, of, of the Earth is still declining by about 0.08% per year. But it is declining primarily, if not exclusively, in poor countries, and especially in Africa and also Latin America. But it is increasing 
in uh, rich countries, uh, afforestation is mm -hmm. taking place. There are more forests being grown. And in China, uh, we are seeing huge amount of afforestation because the country is now richer than what it used to be. So through economic development, we can do that. Through economic development, we can also, um, we can also start protecting more of our marine life um, by creating exclusion zones uh, against fishing and so forth. How can we do that? Why is that connected to economic development? Well, because uh, if you, for example, you can, uh, well, not only do you have more technological um, uh, ways of monitoring who is breaking the rules, uh, but also you can still get access to the food you want through aquaculture. Mm -hmm. Okay? So uh, countries which are richer uh, are able to uh, are able to uh, get their food from uh, from aquaculture rather than from uh, from ordinary uh, shore fishing. So when when it comes to these solutions, which by the way, I mean, what you just said there, it's pretty mind blowing that in much of the world it's getting greener. You know, I mean, that's people just don't think about that. We just sort of just don't accept that that's real. Most of this, do you see that we have to have a, a sort of uh, public and private partnership on how we move forward on these things? Should most of this come from governments? Should it come from private corporations? Should it come from individual people? I mean, that seems to be what a lot of the debate is also about. Well, uh, I think that the, res that the um, uh, evidence uh, for the efficacy of uh, uh, government spending when it comes to uh, science, um, when it comes to scientific uh, research, for example, is, is not all that persuasive. I don't think that governments are particularly good at uh, spending money on scientific research. Um, Meaning that the research is shoddy or just that they throw money at things and then just nothing comes of it? Uh, yeah, that, 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 would be, that would be part of the reason. Um, I am a believer in, uh, in, uh, in uh, private companies uh, doing their own research, um, driven by the profit motive. For example, um, energy inputs into production of anything, from a can of Coke to a bottle of water, uh, are cost money. Uh, companies actually do have uh, an incentive, a profit incentive, to try to limit uh, the amount of resources they use in order to produce any type of good. Mm -hmm. um, in the 1970s, uh, f between 1970s and uh, today, the number of cans of coke that you could get from a pound of aluminum has actually increased by something like 40%. Mm. That's because companies don't want to spend money they don't have to spend on electricity, uh, on uh, spending money on natural resources and, and, and raw materials and what have you. And so what we are actually seeing is that uh, the number of do dollars um, uh, per um, um, what the the amount of the amount of energy uh, we need in order to produce a dollar of output is actually declining, and mm. that's happening naturally through the process of profit maximization on the parts of of corporations. Now, that doesn't mean that there is absolutely no need for any kind of regulations. Mm -hmm. We don't want corporations to be to be dumping uh, toxic uh, materials in uh, our pristine rivers and mm -hmm. what have you. But, uh, uh, but what I am saying is that, uh, is that uh, corporations in search for profit um, are actually very good at coming up with innovative solutions to environmental problems. Yeah, is part of the problem here also that different countries that are at different stages of their evolution, of their economies and everything else, need different things, need wildly different things. What's happening in China now with growth is very different than what's happening in the United States or, or India or any of these countries yes. that now have, have to, that are often putting out more CO2 and emissions and things like that. They're going through their industrial revolutions. We already did it so that we have an unequal playing field when it comes to some of this. Yes, um, so that is a well-known uh, notion within economic development that uh, as a country uh, starts on a path to industrialization, its uh, damage to the environment increases, but once again it reaches that, uh, that inflection yeah. point and then it starts to decrease as people become rich enough to start to appreciate um, 
nice environment. Um, Ninety percent of the plastics that are entering our oceans come from eight rivers. They are all in the developing world, in mm. Africa and in Asia. Uh, the contribution of Western advanced economies to plastic pollution of the oceans is negligible. Um, precisely because we are able to spend more money and effort and thought on uh, how not to do it. What would you say to the people that would say uh, our time is up here or the evolution of humanity is that we've got to go to the stars, that eventually we'll have to get off this, this mortal coil and, and do it again somewhere else? Well, uh, first of all, it is very important to remember that uh, pessimism about humanity's future uh, has been with us since the, since the dawn of writing. Mm -hmm. um, um, from, from antiquity and ancient poems and epics, you know, the, the, after all, the flood, what is it about the flood? Yeah. It's about cleansing the world it's from, pretty from depressing a story. population that, that, uh, that went uh, um, array. Um, the Cato the Elder, uh, writing in 2nd century BC, thought that Rome was finished because, um, you know, uh, the, the, the young were corrupted and uh, um, women had loose morals and men were too effeminate to fight wars. And this is when Rome was just a small town in, uh, you know, with, fewer, uh, with, with a few provinces in Italy. Mm -hmm. uh, Rome continued to expand for the next three to four hundred years. Um, but so he, he was just very early. He was just very early, but yeah. uh, but you can see every generation thinks that 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 we are, especially as we grow older, we think that uh, the world is entering a period of decline. Whereas in fact, what we are doing, we are projecting our own physical decline uh, onto the world. But so far, those uh, those warnings about the imminent collapse of humanity have always been proven wrong, as uh, uh, Thomas Babington Macaulay, uh, the nineteenth-century British politician and writer has written on, on what basis is it that having seen all this progress that we have made behind us, we see nothing but misery hmm. in front of us. I'm paraphrasing, but that's the essence of what he said, and I think he's absolutely right. Yeah, so we've, we've done the diseases we're eradicating, we're doing a lot of good on the environment, or at least have, have some options now. To, we do have options, yes. Yeah. Uh, what, else, what else should we be hitting on to give people some, some positivity? to think about? Well, I think uh, my pet peeve is uh, that I think that uh, people don't read enough history, aren't enough versed in, uh, in, in history, how life really used to be like uh, before. Um, and I wish that people would spend more time thinking about what they are doing on a daily basis and asking themselves, uh, would I be able to do this in the past? Mm -hmm. um, I just had a crown uh, put in or a root canal operation with anesthetic and it was it was not something and it wasn't a particularly pleasant right uh, but 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 it was better than uh, it would have been a hundred years ago a hundred or two hundred years ago you <laughs> would have it you know uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, somebody would have to pull it out of your out of your mouth um, and um, um, so 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 that's one thing uh, I think that people uh, and I think that if people understand history better and how life truly was quite horrific until very recent times, again, we are 300,000 years old, but, but the time of abundance is roughly 200 years old, 250 mm -hmm. years old. Maybe they will be more grateful and, um, uh, for the things that we have. And hopefully they will be more appreciative and more supporting of the institutions which underpin uh, modernity liberal democracy, with all of its warts, with all of its imperfections, uh, it is still functioning better than uh, Putin's Russia mm -hmm. or, or Erdogan's Turkey. Uh, free market capitalism, does it have its problems? Yes. Um, we shouldn't socialize costs of banking, for example, mm -hmm. and, privatized, and privatized gains from Wall Street banking. Um, but again, it is the best. It is the best creator of wealth known to humankind, and so throwing it out 
because there are imperfections on the margins that we should be working on to, to, to improve would be a great mistake. Um, so, yes, appreciation of the past, gratitude for the present, hopefulness for the future. Um, those are the steps, in, I think, in the right direction. That, my friend, is an A-plus ending to an interview. And for more on Marion and the incredible work that Think Progress is doing, you guys can check out thinkprogress.org.